Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of domestic abuse, gore, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Victorian-era London was a city divided into haves and have-nots. The haves lived in a world of decadent abundance. As for the have-nots, they lived on the East End. It was a neighborhood plagued by poverty, disease, and crime. London's police officers didn't even dare to enter certain areas. If someone needed to get through the East End, they made sure to keep their eyes down and clutch their purse tightly. Mary Minter likely had similar thoughts on a spring day in 1889. But as she pushed through the crowded streets, she noticed a young woman slumped on the sidewalk. Mary recognized her. It was her friend's daughter, Elizabeth Jackson, someone she'd watched grow up. Elizabeth was in her early 20s now, and the years had not been good to her. She was unwed and pregnant and sleeping on the streets near the Thames River. To get by, she also solicited men for sex. Mary's heart ached for the young woman. She reached into her pockets and offered Elizabeth some money, but that didn't feel like enough. Without hesitation, Mary slipped off her coat and handed it to Elizabeth. Then she walked away. She hoped the small bit of charity would keep the pregnant woman fed and warm, at least for a night. Little did Mary know, Elizabeth didn't have many nights left. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Thames Torso Murders. Today, we'll learn about an elusive killer who dropped the remains of his victims all around London's East End. Next time, we'll cover his final murders and speculate on who he might have been. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Towards the end of the 19th century, London was considered one of the most populated cities in the world. 
around four million people called the Shining Metropolis home. It was a birthplace to new industries, new inventions, and new opportunities. People flocked to the city with big hopes and dreams. Instead, many of these people found the East End, an area infested with crime, poverty, and disease. The neighborhood's inhabitants struggled to imagine how the place could get any worse. But somewhere around 1887, it did. A murderer started to stalk the streets. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. At least not yet. This one was known only as the Torso Killer. And oddly enough, his reign of terror began in broad daylight in the middle of the Thames River. On May 11, 1887, a river worker named Edward Henry Hughes was relaxing on a jetty near Raynham Ferry. Then he noticed something in the water. It was a large package covered in canvas. A few other river workers saw the bundle, too. They grabbed their poles and fished it out of the water. They probably assumed that it was garbage. After all... The river was a common dumping ground for household trash, but there was always a possibility of something valuable hidden among the refuse. The men brought the parcel onto dry land. They unwrapped it and quickly realized it was not the lost treasure they were hoping for. Instead, it was a woman's torso. It didn't have legs, arms, or a head. The breasts had been cut off and the internal organs had been removed. The workmen panicked and contacted the authorities. Soon enough, Raynham Ferry was flooded with officers. Goddamn East End. I swear, death clings to the city. Andrews! Uh, yes, Chief? I need patrol boats on the river. Get every ship we have out now. Sir, I doubt the killer is out there at this moment. Shouldn't we canvas the block? Go house to house and ask questions about a missing woman? And then what? Ask them to identify her torso? There aren't even any distinguishing marks on the body. If we're to solve this case, we need to find her head. While authorities scoured the waterways for more body parts, the woman's torso was taken to local police surgeon, Dr. Edward Galloway. Three days later, on May 14th, Dr. Galloway gave his findings at the coroner's inquest. I'd say the victim is female, somewhere between 27 and 29 years old. The upper half of the bust, the head, arms, legs, and thighs are missing. It looks like the thigh bones were taken right out of the pelvis, which means someone cut the muscle from the inside to the outside. They're clean cuts, so he must have had something very sharp. This person knew what they were doing for sure, and there isn't any bruising or surface cuts. No sign of a struggle. Not at all? So there's a chance his torso could have just come from a dissecting room. Maybe from one of the surgical schools. Hmm. I doubt that. An institution wouldn't just toss someone's remains out like this. If I had to make a guess, I believe we have a murderer on our hands. Dr. Galloway had just confirmed everyone's fear. A killer walked among them, and his crimes went beyond the pale, even for the East End. Then, the doctor dropped another bomb. Based on how the victim was cut up, I am positive that our killer knows his anatomy. 
He pains me to say it, but this murder was probably done by a medical professional. The investigators were shocked by this theory. Doctors were seen as reputable, almost untouchable members of society, but the evidence was convincing. Officers fanned out over London and spent weeks visiting hospitals and medical schools, but nothing came of it. It seemed as if the case was going nowhere. Then on June 5th, things got much worse. A laborer named Jay Morris was working at Temple Pier, a few miles away from Raynham Ferry. Around 10 a.m., he noticed another canvas-wrapped package floating in the Thames. He opened it and found a human thigh. Hours after that, another parcel was found near Battersea Pier. Inside this one, the upper part of a woman's torso. Once again, Dr. Galloway performed the examinations. Charles, take a look at the skin on the torso. Is it not the same shade and texture as on the thigh? Yes, Dr. Galloway. I believe it is. That means these two latest finds are from the same victim. But where is the rest of the body? (gasps) Of course! The torso discovered at Raynham Ferry. It was just the lower section, right? Here, we have the upper portion and a thigh. Let me see. Here, look at my notes. See my drawing? The upper and lower portions of the torso line up perfectly. But the Raynham torso was discovered weeks ago. If these have been sitting around for all this time, why aren't they decayed? Our killer knows how to preserve a dead body. I'm telling you, this is a medical man of some kind. With that, investigators re-examined the city's best and brightest, They questioned doctors and surgical students. But it was the same story with the same outcome. Authorities came away empty-handed. Then, on June 30th, a man named William Gate spotted another canvas-wrapped package near the Regent's Canal. Inside were two human legs. On July 19th, Dr. Galloway confirmed that these legs were from the same female victim, and he noticed some marks that could point to her identity. Ronan, do you see what I'm seeing? There are depressions all around her legs, sir. She was probably wearing garters. Yes, but look closer. They're just below her knees. I'm not following, doctor. The way my wife tells it, upper-class women wear their garters above their knees. But lower-class? Well, you get the picture. So our victim may have been from the working class. Perhaps she was a laborer. Or a sex worker. Of course, at this point in time, the East End was filled with both, and no one seemed to notice that one of their own had gone missing. But even with this new information, the police continued to hit dead ends. In early August, they decided to perform a final inquest. Even though Dr. Galloway had been immensely helpful, they brought in a more experienced surgeon named Thomas Bond. Dr. Bond carefully examined the dismembered body parts. He agreed with most of Dr. Galloway's findings, but he didn't think the killer was a medical professional. A skilled anatomist couldn't be responsible for this crime. Surgeons are sworn to serve the greater good of humanity. We don't just hack away at bodies. 
This person definitely has the tools and experience to cut into bodies, but who's to say they are human bodies? There are plenty of workmen who are trained to do this with livestock, and they aren't held to the same moral code as my brethren. It's much easier to believe that the killer is a butcher, or perhaps a hunter. Some would later say that Dr. Bond was protecting his own skin. He didn't want people to believe that skilled surgeons like himself were capable of committing such heinous acts. But Dr. Bond had more experience than Dr. Galloway, so his theory stood. Investigators stopped looking into medical professionals and turned their eyes toward lower-class suspects. But the new direction only led to more dead ends. And that meant the torso killer had plenty of time to kill again. Coming up, the Thames torso killer makes his mark on Scotland Yard. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. It was the fall of 1888, and over a year had passed since the first Thames Torso murder. During that time, another killer had emerged from the darkest corners of London's East End. They called him Jack the Ripper. He preyed on lone sex workers. He often slit their throats and mutilated their bodies. At one point, he started cutting out their inner organs, too. The latter led some investigators to believe that the Ripper and the Torso Killer were one and the same. But there was one key difference between their crimes. The Ripper left the heads on his victims. The Torso Killer didn't. What the two did have in common was the East End. They both took advantage of the dark alleyways and the down-and-out masses, and they made the streets and riverways bleed red. And while they probably weren't working together, both of them benefited from operating in the same area. They stretched police resources to their limit and left the East End in a constant state of fear. Because when Jack wasn't ripping through the streets... It was only a matter of time before the Thames Torso Killer made a visit to the river. Sure enough, sometime in August of 1888, the Torso Killer struck again. It's unclear how he committed the act, 
But just like the year before, he hacked away at his victims, wrapped their remains in heavy canvas, then dropped them all around the city. On September 11th, a group of laborers noticed one of those packages at Deal Wharf. One of them walked over for a better look. Come on, guys. I'm sure it's nothing but rubbish. To your left, Moore! Left! Don't be a wuss! The tide is low! See what it is! <sighs> okay, okay. There! Right there, Moore! Down in the mud! Good lord! What is it? Moore! What is it? It's... It, it's an arm! The torso killer was officially back in business, and it seems he wanted to make his presence known to all, including the police. In 1888, London's Metropolitan Police were constructing a new headquarters right across from the Thames River. Every weekday, dozens of laborers arrived near the Victoria Embankment to build what would soon be called New Scotland Yard. Amongst the crew was a carpenter named Frederick Winborn. After a weekend respite, he returned to the busy worksite on Monday, October 1st, 1888. Around 6 a.m., he made his way down into one of the building's basement cellars. The cellars were unfinished and difficult to navigate. Most people needed to light a match to see where they were going. But Winborn went down there nearly every day. He knew all the nooks and crannies, and had even found a hiding spot for his equipment. Winborn didn't trust his co-workers, but he also didn't want to lug his heavy tools home each night. So he often took his bag into the basement and stuffed it behind a wooden board. That morning, he fished around the nook for his tools, as he'd done dozens of times before. But this time, something else was hidden there, too. The carpenter lit a match and saw a large bundle about 2.5 feet long and 2 feet wide, wrapped in paper. He didn't think much of it. It was probably just someone else's tools. He trudged back up the stairs and went on with his day. But when Winborn came back the next morning, the bundle was still there, and it smelled horrible. Around 1 p.m., Winborn told an assistant foreman about the strange package. They lugged it out of its hiding place and slowly unwrapped it. It was another woman's torso. Once again, no head, no arms, and no legs were attached. Maggots were crawling all over it. Another inquest was held. Winborn was called to testify on October 8th, 1888. You have to understand. Even in the daytime, hardly any light trickles into the cellar, so... Either the killer knew the site like the back of his hand, or he knew the come at the off hour, when no one else was around. That way, he'd have plenty of time to light a lamp and find his way around the construction site. Up until this point, a lot of the debates around the torso killer seemed to center on his class status. At first, the investigators believed he was a highly educated doctor, but that hadn't brought them any good leads. Then they'd shifted strategy and looked into hunters and butchers. That didn't help either. Now they wondered if he straddled class lines somehow. He was clearly smart and probably had received a formal education, but he was comfortable among the lower classes. 
Perhaps some financial setback had forced him to get his hands dirty. Or maybe he was actually multiple people. The investigators remembered a tip they'd received a few days before the discovery at Scotland Yard. A man from South Wales reported some suspicious activity near the work site. I was walking along Cannon Row, near one of the worksite's entrances. It was at a late hour, past midnight. To be honest, the timeline is a little blurry. But the street was dead empty. I remember that. Then I heard some noise by Scotland Yard. I walked over and saw a man climbing over that fence around the worksite. Only he wasn't alone. There were two others with him. And one was wheeling around a barrow. It looked like there was some kind of bundle in it. The detectives did their best to track this trio of suspects down, but they couldn't find them, and eventually this theory faded into a distant memory. They went back to the only solid evidence they had, the bodies themselves. According to Dr. Thomas Bond, this victim was about 5 foot 8 inches tall and somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. Her body was badly decomposed, which meant she probably died in late August, about a month before her torso showed up at Scotland Yard. This led authorities to believe that the right arm from Deal Wharf could match up with the torso. Sure enough, when the two pieces were brought together, they lined up. This marked a clear shift in the torso killer's methodology. A year prior, he dropped his victim's remains all around the Thames, But this latest discovery was left inside a building. The killer might have changed his M.O., or something might have gone wrong. The increased security on the river probably made it difficult for him to drop anything in. So he might have gone with Plan B, dumping the torso at a construction site. If that was the case, he could have left something else behind. So police decided to re-examine the Scotland Yard basement. Reporter Jasper Waring brought his Russian terrier mix smoker to help with the inspection. On October 17, 1888, the dog was brought down into the cellar and allowed to sniff the area where the torso had been found. He trotted around the room for a few minutes, then froze. He found something. The terrier dug into the earth. About six inches in... He bit down on a human leg. Later that night, Smoker found an arm down there, too. This meant the killer had not only dropped off human remains in the vault, he'd also buried them. I don't understand. We had a pack of dogs check the area before, and they found nothing. Smoker isn't your average dog, Constable. Yes, of course, Mr. Waring. I'm sure Smoker is a very good dog. But maybe... Do you think it possible the killer returned after the first Scotland Yard discovery? I just don't understand how these last two, the arm and the leg, could have been here this whole time. Look at the ground, Inspector. It's been stained from all of the liquefied remains. They were probably buried weeks ago. But the carpenter said he saw the bundle on the first of the month. It's only been a few days. Did the killer plant these before and come back with the torso? Mm, that seems awfully risky. Maybe the torso was here the whole time, and the carpenter didn't see it. Perhaps another worker did. 
With this revelation, authorities took another look at the Scotland Yard laborers, both as witnesses and suspects. But once again, this line of questioning got them nowhere. At this point, the investigators only knew two things for certain. One, the killer was skilled with a knife. And two, he was sneaking around right under their noses. Other than that, the torso killer was a complete mystery. Next, the Thames torso killer strikes again. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. It was 1889. Another year had come and gone. And it seemed like the torso murderer had taken a back seat to Jack the Ripper. The latter had been wreaking havoc all over London, quickly building up his death count. In contrast, the torso killer only seemed to kill once a year. So by the summer of 1889, the authorities were almost waiting for him. On the morning of June 4, 1889, 15-year-old Isaac Brett was bathing in the river by the Albert Bridge. That's when he saw a package drifting right by him. He promptly got out of the water and brought the parcel to the authorities. When the bundle was unwrapped, investigators found a woman's thigh. But there were a few other things in the package, too. There was a part of a brown overcoat and a pair of women's underwear. Someone had written a name on the waistband. L.E. Fisher. This was a particularly exciting find. But before the authorities could track down this L.E. Fisher... The torso killer dropped off a few more packages. Within days, another parcel showed up at Battersea Park. This one was wrapped in linen and held the decaying remains of a woman's trunk. Later that day, a shoulder was discovered near Coppington's Wharf. On June 7th, a leg washed ashore near the Wandsworth Bridge. On the 8th, authorities collected a left arm, buttocks, pelvis, lower back, and a chunk of thigh. Soon after, a local found a right arm and hand. When medical examiners pieced together all of the parts, they realized that this victim was in her mid-twenties, around five foot five inches. She'd been about seven months pregnant at the time of her death. Around the same time, the investigators also realized that her name was not Ellie Fisher. They looked into all the women who could have gone by that name. None of them matched the description. The actual victim probably bought these undergarments secondhand. In any case, by June 13th, they gave a detailed description to the London press. It noted the victim's approximate age, height, marks, and the type of clothing she was found with, including the dark-colored overcoat. Luckily, someone recognized it. I believe I know who the latest victim is. You see, I read that she was found with, um, pieces from a dark overcoat. 
I gave a woman my coat not too long ago. I've known her mother for a long time, and I ran into her last month. She was sleeping out in the raw, and... Oh, God, she was with child, too. I should have done more, but all I did was give her some money and my coat to keep her warm. I'm so foolish. Ma'am, you shouldn't abuse yourself for this. Now, please tell me, what was her name? Elizabeth Jackson. For the first time ever, detectives could attach a name to one of the torso victims. They tried to learn all they could about Elizabeth Jackson. It didn't take them long to find some basic details. She was born around 1865, and she began work as a domestic servant when she was 16. She kept that job for several years, but then in the fall of 1888, she left her position and her home. She was 23 years old at the time. Reports have never been confirmed, but it's believed she was let go due to an inappropriate relationship with the man of the house. With no other job lined up, she fell on hard times and became a sex worker. This came as a complete surprise to Elizabeth's family. A few months later, her sister Annie saw her soliciting a John. Come on, sweetie. You know I'll show you a good time. Yeah? What'd you have in mind? I know a place around the corner we can... Elizabeth? (sighs) Excuse me. Babe, where are you going? I'm sorry, I gotta go. Elizabeth Jackson, I know that's you. Stop right there. Annie, it's so good to see you. What in God's name were you just doing? Nothing. I swear. Are you picking up men for immoral purposes? What if I am? What if you are? Don't tell me you're a prostitute. What do you think mom and dad are going to say when they hear about this? Nothing. Because you're not going to say anything, Annie. You're not going to say one word to them. Promise me. Promise you? I can't even look at you right now. You had everything lined up in your last job. I I don't understand why you'd ever leave good, honest work for this. (laughs) Yeah, you wouldn't. No one does. Elizabeth, come back. Where are you going? With that, Elizabeth stormed out of her sister's life. And right into the arms of one of her clients, a 37-year-old named John Faircloth. Around November of 1888, the two began a passionate affair. Sometime later, they moved into a rooming house together. But life was far from perfect. According to the landlady, Faircloth was abusive and hit Elizabeth regularly. Johnny, stop it! Stop it! Don't you ever tell me what to do. Please think of the baby. Think of the baby. Think of the rent. For the love of God, I wish I never met you. You don't mean that. I mean every word. (laughs) Then go. I don't need you anyways. Suit yourself. I won't be told twice. By April of 1889, the two had gone their separate ways. But despite the newfound peace, life was hard for Elizabeth. Unable to afford rent, she slipped out of the boarding house and roamed the streets of Chelsea. 
And that's where she ran into another familiar face. On May 31, 1889, Elizabeth saw her mother, Catherine Jackson, for the last time. Five pence, that's all I'm charging. A good discount if you ask me. Elizabeth? Annie told you, didn't she? Don't worry about that. What do you want, Mother? I just wanted to see you. Why didn't you tell me you left your job? I could have gotten you another one. I could have done- No, you couldn't have. I know it's been hard for you, too. I didn't want to worry you. Yes, but this? What you're doing now, it worries me. I don't need your judgment or your pity. I'm fine. Are you sure about that, Elizabeth? I'm with child. I'm sorry, mother. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh, my girl. We will figure this out together. Everything will be okay. The mother and daughter spent the afternoon together, and for a moment, Elizabeth thought everything would be all right. She walked down the cobblestone streets, determined to make the best of this awful situation. But at some point in the next four days, she came into contact with one of London's most notorious criminals, the Torso Killer. And she was unlucky enough to be his third known victim. Given that Elizabeth's ex, John Faircloth, was abusive, it's easy to assume that he may have had a hand in her murder. However, at this point, Faircloth had moved about ten miles south to the town of Croydon. As a result, it seemed like the authorities took him off their list of suspects. Besides, as abusive as Faircloth was, it was difficult to imagine someone killing the mother of his unborn child. Elizabeth's desperation made other theories seem more plausible. With her relationship on the rocks and no stable income, it's possible she sought a back-alley doctor who specialized in illegal abortions. This would explain why there was a large cut on her lower torso and why her unborn child had been ripped from her womb. From there, it seemed authorities felt more inclined to believe Dr. Edward Galloway's initial findings. Perhaps the killer was a medical professional, but instead of seeing his patients in accredited hospitals or clinics, maybe he saw his patients in the privacy of his own home or his place of business. That would give him the time and space to not only kill his victims, but to carefully cut their remains into pieces. Of course, this was all just speculation. Despite knowing the identity of the killer's third victim, they still had no idea who he was. Before the police would be able to scratch that surface of that mystery, more body parts were going to turn up. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next time with part two of the Thames Torso Murders. For more information on the Thames Torso Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Thames Torso Murders of Victorian London by R. Michael Gordon and the Thames Torso Murders by M.J. Tro. extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Freddie Rivera, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Jane O, edited by Kylie Harrington and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Catherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Travis Clark. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Brian Kim McCormick, Melissa Medina, Cameron Nicod, and Rebecca Thomas. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs>